This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast Conversations, the professor and the practitioner. I'm joined by Dr. Whitney Martinko of Villanova University. And uh, this is our second monthly installment in PreserveCast Conversations. The idea is for us to sit down and talk about what's happening in preservation and how we think about it from our sort of diverse perspectives in thinking about the philosophy of preservation and then trying to do preservation. Um and remarkably, I think we agree on almost everything so far. We'll have to find so something. Far. We, so yeah. far, uh, <laughs> we need to get into like a big disagreement. I think that would be good for the listeners. Um, yes. Well, maybe it's so, today. It's good to be maybe, good to be back. We'll see what happens. Maybe, maybe so. Yeah. Good to be back. Let's fight. Um, so uh, what, are you, what are you thinking about? What's, what's the big stuff going on right now? What's top on your list? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm still thinking about that big donation, that second round of donation that McKinsey Scott has given to so many cultural and arts and historical organizations and, you know, noticed that the African-American Cultural Heritage Action Fund, part of the National Trust, of course, is on that list. So they just got $20 million. And it's interesting to think about what that influx of capital can do and can't do for particular preservation initiatives. Yeah, it it's sort of like we were talking before we hit record that it's sort of wrapped up in this this the whole piece of how philanthropy works with preservation. It's the latest in a long line of big gifts to preservation stemming back, you know, 150 years at this point. Um and yeah, what is 20 million dollars do, right? Because you, you have certain ideas in mind about how you're going to spend money and how much money you're going to give out and the kind of projects you're going to do and the scale and scope. And sometimes money, it sort of like wags the dog a little bit, like all of a sudden, like, whoa, you know, and, and I'm sure that Brent Legs and everyone at the National Trust can figure out how to spend 20 million. I'd right. love, to be in the, <laughs> love to be in the position to figure out how to spend 20 million, but it does change the scale, the scope. And then it also sort of begs the question about like, obviously the work that they're doing around African-American heritage is critical. Um, but what about women's history and what about Latinx history and how do they find similar passion, um, and similar philanthropy to support all these other pieces of history? I think that that becomes sort of the challenge when you start sort of creating these different pockets and pools. And hopefully the positive spin to that is that McKenzie's, um, Scott's gift, um, inspires others right normally right. money but money begets money nothing succeeds like success right so people say oh my gosh they gave 20 million it's like why people still get to harvard right 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 and like, hopefully <laughs> you know that's part if we read scott's statement you know she said the headlines are all going to be about the donor and the donation which proves to be true right but scott said you know hopefully the donation in some way will call attention to the work that's already being done by so many of these organizations, right? So hopefully we will see that. I do think the headlines tend to favor the story of her donation rather than the organizations. But, you know, I'm hopeful that the trust will, you know, take a real intersectional approach and focus on Black women or Afro-Latinx communities in the U.S. But, you know, you're right that they're 
you know, hopefully there won't be too much of a siloed approach to, to preservation. And I think that we're seeing that that probably won't be the case. I was also looking at the other organizations that Scott has given to you. And I'm, I'm thinking that there might be some hidden preservation agendas in other organizations. Um, for instance, she gave to the Alaska Native Heritage Center, right? That there's certainly a preservation mission of that organization, both for intangible and tangible heritage. I think that a lot of the donations to HBCUs, for instance, could potentially go to the preservation of these historic campuses. You know, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the donations will go to student scholarships and funds, but there are, a lot of these organizations have physical assets, tangible assets that hopefully will um, be funded for generations to come. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously you work in, in higher ed and I feel like for preservationists or anybody in nonprofit world who doesn't work in higher education, sometimes you look at the gifts going to higher education, you're like, okay, I get it. But like, there's other there's other worthy, you know, um, needs out there. And, you know, another $30 million to again, we're picking on Harvard, but another $30 million <laughs> to Harvard or Yale or something like that. And it's like, what what could be done with that if it went to the National Trust, if it went to a local preservation group, you know, like, I feel like the impact of that money could be you know, really big. And so that's what, that's what sort of excites me about like a big gift to something outside of higher ed. Yes. Um, Cause higher ed takes up so much space and in, in so much like oxygen in the world of philanthropy. Um, and it's, I don't want to say it's easy to raise money for higher ed. It's not, I don't want to make it sound like the people who have to raise money just have these easy jobs, but they have a built in camaraderie, right? You know who your donors are. You right. went to Villanova. Well, then you're like, you're a potential Villanova donor, yes. <laughs> right? So but for me, it's like, I don't, you're not like an alumni of Preservation Maryland, right? right? Like I have to like figure out, okay, well, they, they are, they're interested in this, this kind of thing. So I think Mackenzie's gift is good for the entire, I don't want to say industry, that makes it sound sort of corporate, but for the entire preservation community and ecosphere, because it's like, okay, something can be done with this. This is a good thing. This is somebody with big money who's, progressive and looking at issues who sees value in doing this and she's not creating another institute she's not doing this she's going out and funding something that is sort of at the grassroots level and what happens when you dump you know 20 million dollars on something that previously was sort of underfunded or you know like you were talking about other places she funded she funded the motown museum right um which did not have they were like on hard times man um, which sounds sort of like a Motown song, but like they, <laughs> they, they, they were, you know, they, they, they were in tough shape and that money could be, and will be, I'm sure transformative. Um, but you're right. And you were saying that this is sort of like the shift in philanthropy in preservation as well. Right. That, right. Like what were you saying about, you were talking before we, we hit record about how, you know, there's a big difference between the preservationists of the early 20th century and the Mackenzie Scots. Right. I was thinking, and, you know, I'm not saying that this has never happened before, obviously, but it does seem that when I think of the history of philanthropy and preservation, it often has to do with acquisition, right? The Rockefellers, the DuPonts, who go out and buy salvage materials, right? Or they buy houses to move to their own estates or to create a living history museum. So this is a model of preservation philanthropy, which, as you said, is seeding grassroots museums, initiatives. Um, you know, there are a lot of national initiatives as well, but those are seeking to really have 
their tentacles in a lot of different places, right? So we're not seeing this as a collector or a connoisseur who is, you know, seeking to fund sites or preservations of one particular place or buildings from a particular era, that it really is more distributive. Um, And I don't know if that, you know, you probably have your pulse more on philanthropy and preservation now. Can you think, are there other particular big donors who are you know, sort of giving funds to whatever general operating uses there may be in preservation? Or are you seeing that more on a, say, Well, I, I will level? say, yeah, well, first and foremost, when you say general operating, there's there's no two words that get me happier right. than general <laughs> operating, right? Like, that's like, if you get, if you ever get a grant for general operating, that's, that's um, cause for celebration, but because right. they're too far into, you know, in between. But, um, yeah, I mean, there there are people out there um, I'm thinking um, of, you know, people who have given to national park projects and like historic sites that sort of are open to the American people and sort of investing in those right. um, as sort of like, you know, they, they call it like patriotic giving. Um, so like the guy behind, you know, who gave money for the Washington Memorial, Washington Monument in DC and, um, mm-hmm. things that were sort of otherwise seen as sort of like the realm of like, well, that's government should fund that, but government wasn't, or it would have been too slow or it wouldn't have gone the full distance. Um, you know, so I think that, um, there's definitely that out there. And I think there's just a bigger shift sort of in philanthropy in general. People may be familiar with it is like people get really like all tied up around the axle about like, um, well, how much overhead does this organization spend? And, and, you know, and that kind of thing. And there's been a pushback about like, no, that's in order to run an organization well, in order to have people and to take care of them, you actually have to spend money. Right. Yes. And you have to pay your workers. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the unfortunate part of, of running a nonprofit. We do actually have to pay people. Um, and so, I think that broadly philanthropy is beginning to accept that. I think the challenge within most preservation philanthropy is that a lot of the old school foundations that were set up um, with uh, maybe a preservation focus, and I can think of dozens of them, which I will not name um, for for fear of retribution, um, but they're they're hyper-focused on capital. Right. Right. And so it's like, well, unless you're fixing a window, we're not giving you a grant. And... You know, even within baked within, I think is great within the African-American Cultural Action Fund, the trust is money for operating, money to hire an executive director to try and build sustainability, money for planning, um, you know. And so I think that, th- that that's the next big evolution is that we really have to kind of embrace this idea that preservation is not just about saving the brick and mortar. Yes. Um, it's a piece of it. It's an important piece of it. But also to the point about dropping $20 million. Like if you went and dropped $20 million in an organization that had no plans and no sort of financial sustainability, it's almost like the worst thing you could do to an organization, which sounds counterintuitive, but organizations can blow through money if they don't have good plans in place. Of course. Um, And if you're not paying for folks who, you know, have a vision, have a plan, have staff, right? Preservation is not a, is not, should not be the purview of volunteers entirely. Right. right? And that's we all nonprofit work. Yeah. Yeah. That's all nonprofit work. And a lot of some founder, some funders and foundations have, have embraced that and understand that. 
but I think that there's a there's a lot of headwinds against it because you know they may not be the Rockefellers and the Duponts, but a lot of wealthy industrialists who set up foundations in the early and mid twentieth century they were all about preservation and they said, yes, we want to fund preservation and we want to fund building preservation. So even, for example, when we at Preservation Maryland launched the Campaign for Historic Trades, which is this whole effort to try and um, change the nature of trades training in America and we're working on establishing registered apprenticeships and we're putting young adults and recent veterans in the field doing training and things like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the traditional funders that we went to were like, cool, what, what, what physically do you need? And we're like, well, we pay these individuals, you know, so that so that it's not just um, something that rich kids can go and do. It's, right. you know, anybody can take six months and if they're paid and go work in the national parks and learn a trade and then get, a you know, a, sort of an, an entree to trade a trades career. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, but but we buy things like do right. you need a truck. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't need a truck. Like it almost puts you in this weird place where you're like, well, geez, I guess I'll get a truck, sell it and then use the money for the things I actually need, which is just this weird backwards world of philanthropy. So even doing something that is very much sort of central to what the preservation community needs can be difficult with that money, which again, kind of coming full circle to put maybe put a bow on it from my side on Mackenzie is that hopefully this inspires others and sort of sees like, wow, Preservation can be used as a social good. We can invest in communities. We can invest in stories that haven't been told. And it doesn't all have to be like, I think she's pretty wide open. Like, here's 20 million for your fund. Yes. Right. Yeah, Use it the so. best way. You right. Know? And I think um, that that's where we can connect it to to preservation is also about people, right? That maybe donors or philanthropists who are really attracted to preservation. I can see why it is tempting to say, right? I my funds preserved this building, right? Or um, built, you know, a wing on a museum to interpret preservation or what have you. But, you know, ultimately what needs funding too are people, people who need training, right? Whether it be in trades or hiring an executive director to be a good steward of the funds and of sites. So, um, you know, people are good investments for preservation as well. Yeah. And we've been talking about like, I mean, a lot of what we talk about here and like sort of your background is the sort of the, these legacies and the history of all of this. And that's all tied up in the legacy of philanthropy, right? Like right. the great men of philanthropy wanted their names on things and you can't put your name unless you endow a chair. You can't really name a person. You can't. They haven't figured that one out yet. Right. Like, right. <laughs> I am not I am not the Jeff Bezos uh, president and CEO of Preservation Maryland, although for the right amount of money, I would be. Yeah. Um, but, I don't think um, he's given out his money, unfortunately, though. I don't so think so. That's why I Mackenzie think... Scott is uh, giving giving hers away. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think that that's that's sort of a legacy of that is that it's tied up in the physical space and things you can put your name on. Right. Because right. even, even philanthropy was kind of imbued with that early on. Um, so we wanted to talk, we're, this is not all the trust all the time, but the trust has no. been in the news a lot on preservation and um, certainly on the, um, the endangered list side. Right. Because we had talked about endangered lists in our, Last conversation, thinking about, you know, are they effective or are they not? And so it lit up my uh, brain when I saw the top 10, sorry, top 11 most endangered historic places for 2021, which came out at the very beginning of June from the trust. And 
took a look over them since we had been talking about it. And I was curious if anything jumped out at you from the list that um, seemed remarkable or um, anything that you thought was interesting to learn about. Well, we certainly have one in our backyard, which is um, sort of, I think the cool thing that the trust has been doing, we were talking about is sort of making these things kind of emblematic of bigger issues. Right. So we've got a historic African-American cemetery that could potentially be impacted by continued road expansion to be determined whether or not that road will eventually be expanded. Um, a lot of fight over it, not just because of the African-American cemetery, but all the other impacts associated with expanding roads. And do we need to expand roads? And, you know, those roads were empty during the pandemic because everybody worked from home. So, right. um, you know, traffic wasn't really a concern when we figured out how to do that. And now we're all kind of headed back to where we were and is that good and you know it's interesting that preservation and is at the middle of all of these conversations um but you know african-american cemeteries for me has always been something that i'd like to see us tackle we we worked to try and see legislation introduced in the maryland general assembly during the last session it didn't pass it was caught up in a bunch of different local issues but the idea basically is we want to see a study done to figure out how to better preserve and invest in um, black cemeteries um, and other cemeteries associated with underrepresented communities. Although our, our primary issue in Maryland is, is black cemeteries and the loss of them and um, you know, not taking care of them and how do, how do we get there? And, and cemeteries, it's great to see the trust do that because for far too long, cemeteries have sort of been seen as not part of the preservation story all because of the silly way in which the National Register doesn't recognize them. Right. Um, and so because so many preservationists live and die by the National Register, I do not count myself as one of them. Right. I, I, I sort of think it's an interesting thing, but I don't I don't get up in the morning and, and think, well, I'm not going to touch that because it's not on the National Register. Right. Um, but because so much of our institutional and bureaucratic framework is built around it, we haven't done enough on cemeteries. Um, and, you know, like certain shippos won't even list them as historic sites. Right. Now, it's not eligible for the register. We're not going to touch them. And who in the general public, here's a question I'll ask you, mm -hmm. do you really think would go to a, a cemetery and be like, no, this isn't historic? Right. I think, would yeah. anyone? <laughs> I think cemeteries are one of the most uh, probably – uh, agreed upon sites, right, as being something that should remain in place in this era, particularly because of the history of removal of so many of them, particularly of impoverished populations, Black populations, Indigenous populations. Um, that seems to be the one that, you know, most people, I think, have empathy and think, I wouldn't want my ancestors disturbed, right? So the well, folks right. who it's are like not moved... Who aren't yeah, moved just... by like the historic, you know, the sort of academic or um, intellectual appeal of uh, having historic sites in place can uh, can sort of have that feeling of, well, yeah, I wouldn't want my ancestors disturbed from their resting place. We should preserve cemeteries. So if we can't imagine ourselves in the position of others because of historical reasoning, then that just sort of general empathy seems to lead people to saying like, yes, cemeteries are probably places that we should preserve. Yeah, I think it's one of those areas where preservationists really should be working because, like you said, there's an emotional connection, mm -hmm. um, which isn't a bad thing. It's emotional because they matter. Right. Right. Like, it's not like we're drawn on people's heartstrings. It's they're emotional because because it matters. And 
it's one of the most distasteful things. Like when someone sees a historic building come down, they can have various different opinions on that. It was an eyesore. There needs to be growth. I, or, or on the other side, what a loss, you know, tragic, environmental impact, whatever. But there's a variety of different opinions. Most Americans, and I don't have polling to back this up, although I'd love to see it. Mm-hmm. I would imagine if you asked, find the removal or building over a cemetery, pretty distasteful. There's not like people who are like, yeah, you know, like, oh, that's just grandma. You know, like, I, I think that there's something about it that's just like, geez, like, you know, this is a big country. We've got a lot of places we can build. Do we need to do that? And when you hear about some of the terrible things that were done, particularly with black cemeteries, right. um, I know a school, the school that I went to in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, um, back in like the 50s and 60s, they, they basically built over what was the black community. And they went in and they kind of removed the black cemetery. But archaeologists determined when they went to rebuild some of those buildings, they didn't really remove it all. I mean, so right. the stuff that was done in the name of growth, I think most people find distasteful, which is why I think the preservation community needs to find a way to get at the center of this issue, which is why I think it was great that the trust listed it because it's you know, it's one cemetery, it's one issue. It remains to be seen whether or not that road will be built, whether or not they'll pave over the cemetery. But the issue across the state and across our entire nation is something big. And I know that there's federal legislation that's been introduced several times. And we're finally beginning to see, we're going to talk about it here at the end, I guess, but finally beginning to see some federal movement on black history issues. So I hope that there is a cemetery program with some teeth and some money behind it um, to start helping and encouraging states to do this kind of work and and preservation groups to to bite it off i know that a lot of the preservation groups that i work with don't do cemetery stuff and again it just goes back to that legacy of the national register and we could do a whole show on what we like and what we don't like about the national register i think what we like <laughs> would be about the first three minutes and then we could just spend the rest on what we don't like right and, you know and i think that the trust was smart to choose this particular cemetery because it highlights the history of highways being destructive of black communities. So in this case, this cemetery, they say that, you know, in an act of racial injustice, highway construction in the 1960s ran through the adjacent black community at the site in Maryland and actually took out a portion of this very cemetery site. So Mm -hmm. now that the highway is potentially going to be expanded, it's threatening the rest of the cemetery. So I think this shows how, you know, decisions made in the 1960s, particularly around um, highways being built, a so-called urban renewal, there's still, we're still losing sites because of those, right? And, and we can say all we want that we recognize that injustice and communities that were lost, buildings that were lost, people who were displaced. But then when there's a chance to not replicate and continue that pattern, it seems like somehow it's magically up for debate again, right? That somehow we need a, a, a wider highway here. So, you know, I think that it's always the, it's yeah, it's always the place that like, Hmm, well, where are we going to expand this? Right. Well, there's that, that cemetery there, right? You're not going to take someone's house. God forbid that that, that happened. You're going to go, you're going to, you know, the, the, the lowest sort of um, rung of protection always seems to be that. And, you know, I heard something similar said. We work in the smart growth world here in Maryland. And I heard a farmer from like a farm bureau um, talking about solar panels, which is another issue we could talk about mm-hmm. and landscapes and things. And they said, why is it that farms always have to be 
the place for every new idea. Mm-hmm. Like, why why is it that like you know we don't look at you know uh, you know uh, parking lots and surface parking and big box stores and it's always like well. Oh, there's those farms over there. Let's use that. And I sort of feel you could say the same thing about black spaces and on the landscape. It's like, why, why is it always, why are they always the first ones to feel the impact? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, why is it that, th- th- you know, and, and you can make all these different arguments. Well, this is the topography and this is the way. And, you know, I'm sure that there's some rational engineering arguments associated with it, but it just seems like all too often, it is the 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 path of least resistance is just to blast through that space. Um, and I think you're right. It, it's enough with the statements of, you know, we're not going to tolerate this injustice and, you know, we, we need to reckon with our past. Well, we also need to reckon with, you know, the future as well and the way in which we treat these places and spaces. Right. And I think that this cemetery in particular is a great way of bringing that history to the forefront and, and showing the way that these... Um, that these landscapes are um, decisions were made because of a racial geography that has developed over the 19th and the 20th century um, and that we're at risk of just perpetuating it. And so it's a nice marriage, I think, of not just relying on that human empathy connection to say the cemetery should stay in place, but to say, no, we really have to understand the historical context of both the Black community that developed in Cabin John, Maryland, and also the histories of highway building and infrastructure that displaced it. So to understand that history, it makes uh, an even stronger case, I think, for the preservation of this site. And, you know, I think there are a lot of other, you know, um, interesting entries on the on this um, endangered list from the National Trust that teach similar lessons, right, of why understanding the history of development of a site is really important for making the case for preservation today. So um, I was particularly struck. I'm always interested when preservation groups take on, you know, so-called natural landscapes as mm-hmm. sites of preservation. So, you know, the Boston Harbor Islands were listed as a endangered site. And here, of course, it's highlighting you know, archaeological resources as something preservationists should protect, um, natural historic sites, um, in sites that are important to um, indigenous communities as well. So, um, you know, tackling issues well, of climate change, for instance, here, the trust is trying to bring that to the fore, I think, as well. Yeah, and it kind of goes back. I know I'm, apparently I'm on like a National Register kick today, or my <laughs> my angry angriness with the with the register. I hope the keeper doesn't hear this, right. which is the best title in preservation. I think the keeper of the yes. register, um, <laughs> keeper of the of the flame. But um, you know, you're talking about like th- this sort of artificial division between natural history and natural place and climate change and cultural history. And in America, we're very much like. No, those are two separate things. You have the conservation fund that does, you know, that. And then you have the National Trust that does this. But that, again, is sort of a false construction created by the National Register. Whereas if you go to England, as you know, you know, like the National Trust of, you know, the United Kingdom, um, Wales and Northern Ireland does both. And they blend the two together sort of seamlessly. They do landscape and natural preservation. And a lot of that also has to do with the fact that they don't they didn't have the national park tradition that we established and grew up with. Um, and I say grow up as like a nation, not you and me personally. Sure. Um, we, we, we postdated the creation of the parks. But um, 
you know, so so they kind of had to have this charity in place that did some of that stuff. But I think as a result, they have a much um, richer and sort of seamless understanding of places that matter there and sort of understanding that the natural and the cultural kind of flow back and forth between each other um, in a way that, you know, we, we don't always see here. I, I love the idea of conservancies yes. where you kind of tackle all of the issues together. And, and the issue there, I think most of the time is that you have separate groups that have been established in communities to do separate things and you'd have to start doing mergers, right? Of which it gets into the nitty gritty business of nonprofits. Um, but I think that that's probably the best way to really tackle all of those things collectively. Right. Um, and I'm hoping, and it's, and it's tough. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that Deb Holland is going to bring some of that more, um, synergistic, I guess, thinking and, and having an indigenous views of the environment, you know, as secretary of the interior, she is saying that places like bear's ears, for instance, they're cultural and they're natural, right? They're historic and they're still living places, right? So it's really calling into question this idea that places are one or the other, they're past or they're present. Um, you know, she says many of these sites that um, white Americans might look at as, you know, pristine natural sites. She's saying, you know, these are sites that have been occupied for so many generations, right? That um, she says, you know, her ancestors weren't just there in the past, but are there today, right? And so I think that her vision for um, environmental protection, marrying this idea of history um, and culture and saying that humans aren't separate from nature, right? I think right. that could have a really big impact on the way that conservation and preservation have a relationship in this case in the national government, but maybe also in, in just um, how people think about it when they're reading her perspectives on the sites that she is entrusted right. with as the Secretary of the Interior now. Well, and I give preservationists and, and the register uh, a hard knock a lot, but I actually do think something we get right as a, as a community is this idea of cultural landscapes mm -hmm. and that we can look at a place like the Smoky Mountains or um, Shenandoah National Park and see, well, this isn't, this isn't some pristine natural landscape. This was a lived landscape that then an artificial nature was sort of imposed on it, right? right. And so there is a story there in that case well, it, it's it's an indigenous story, and then it's a story of Scots Irish, you know, edging out a life in this place, and then being pushed off so that people could come and recommune with nature. Um, right. But I think that something that we do get right is sort of seeing those layers of history um, and seeing the complexity of it all, and that humans have impacted the landscape. Um, and I think that sometimes on the natural side, that's something that they miss. They're like, no, we can take this back to the way it looked, and that. That's never really the case. You're never really taking it back. Humans have had an impact on almost every square inch of the country. There's very few places that are truly still wild. Even the places we call wild, most of them have had um, some impact like that. So I do think that that's something that we get right. And I love the idea that the preservation community, many of us have embraced sort of this layers of history approach yes. rather than trying to freeze something in one period of time. And something else that you said that sort of reminded me is one of the most um, – and maybe we could add this in the future to these conversations like impactful places that have kind of sparked us and, and changed our thinking. Um, last year I went to Ganondagon, um, which is a um, Iroquois site 
in um, upstate New York. And it's the only um, native site that's a part of this New York State Park system that's truly there just as a native site. Like there are other places, obviously, that have native history, but this one is established and is run in partnership with the Iroquois. Um, and so there was a young Iroquois interpreter, native interpreter, um, and who started the, the tour and took you up to the longhouse and kind of walked you through this landscape. And it was part, part nature, part cultural. But one of the things that you said that reminded me that she echoed as well is she said, we're not, the, we're not in the past. We still are here. Yes. Right. And like that, she was like, that's something I want. I hope that you'll take with you is that we are not a historical relic. We're not something that you talk about in the past tense. We are still on the landscape and we are still here and we're still living. And, um, I think that that's something that hopefully Deb Holland can bring um, among many other things that we need at the Department of the Interior, but um, just by her very presence and kind of reminding people that yes. it's not a past tense, right? It's Agreed. not they were, it's they are. Right. Um, and that that's something important for, for all preservationists to, to, to remind themselves of, particularly groups like us in Maryland where we have so few indigenous people. I mean, they've been basically forcibly removed from our landscape and we have precious few left um and it's important for us to honor that and to recognize that and remember that they're they're in the present right and recognize that indigenous history a lot of cities for instance have sort of new waves of indigenous history so for instance mm -hmm. you know philadelphia baltimore there are large communities of um, Lumbee, for instance, who came to work in textile mills in the 20th century. So I think sometimes in this area, we have a sense that indigenous history is only, you know, Lenape history in the era of William Penn's colonization, right? But when we start looking, we can see that places on the East Coast have very rich indigenous histories that involve in migration, that involve um, both sort of survivance and continuing presence of um, people on ancestral homelands, but we also see these migration histories. Um, the the iron workers who built the Ben Franklin Bridge in Philadelphia, for instance, in the 1920s, are coming from Mohawk communities um, that are on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border. Um, mm -hmm. You know, migrants yeah, who are coming whole... to work in textiles. It's really fascinating once you start really thinking about um, places on the East Coast that have vibrant Indigenous histories that aren't just about people remaining on their ancestral homelands, which, of course, is a huge important part as well. It's a piece of it. Yeah, it's it's sort it would be almost analogous to if you were if you were approaching black history to be like, well, the only black history we really have in Maryland is the history of slavery. Right. And it's like, well, no, that's like that that's a incredibly important period and transformative and you know, is is to this day there's a legacy of it, but then there's also what about the migration from the south into the Baltimore industry? Like it would it would be like forgetting that. And I think for some reason we do that with indigenous people. It's like we want to capture them and, and freeze them in amber in that one moment and not recognize that they've moved around since and that they've been part of our story ever since. Um, yeah, and you just reminded me, sort of there's a, there's a whole tradition of Mohawk iron workers um, who go across the country. I remember um, growing up in Buffalo. And oh, I have members, yeah. of my family, members of my family who are um, Mohawk. And um, I'm not, but they, 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 their father was. Um, and... Um, you know, like there, there were Mohawk iron workers who helped build the arena there um, because they um, that community in general um, is is like very comfortable with heights. 
And so that's like one of their things is that they're just like, they're amazing with, with ironwork and things like that. Um, and sort of have embraced that. And I think that that's something where it's like, if you're going to capture indigenous stories and amber and trying to try and keep it in the past, you don't recognize that like, well, there's a whole industrial story to the Mohawk people. Um, you know, and nowadays there's a whole casino story that has sort of given them uh, a level of financial independence, um, which is, you know, there's there's different ways of looking at the casino impact on Native peoples, but that's a whole other story. So right. I, I always love when people, ever, uh, one of my favorite things to say is everything has a history. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, why don't we take a quick break, come back, and then let's talk about Pride Month, some things going on with that, and then our newest federal holiday. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. We want to thank Oliver Pluff and Company for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Oliver Pluff and Company tells the story of historic American beverages, including teas, spiced drinks, cacao, and coffee, for historic sites, national parks, gourmet markets, and consumers looking for a great beverage hand-packaged in signature artisan tins. To enjoy a cup of history and learn more about what Oliver Pluff and Company offers, please visit oliverpluff.com. That's Oliver Pluff, spelled P-L-U-F-F dot com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast Conversations. Again, we're talking with Dr. Whitney Martinko, our co-host on this, the professor and the practitioner. We've been going in a lot of different directions. We've talked about Mohawk iron workers. We've talked about the Mackenzie Scott gift, philanthropy, the DuPonts. We've touched a lot of ground. Um, and neither of us, I think I can say are satisfied with the national register. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's pride month. Um, and, uh, so LGBTQ history, super cool thing just happened. We have a new national memorial pulse. Is this, what do you think about all this? Where, what, what does this mean? Um, good, bad, and indifferent. Well, I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's a huge tragedy. It's a, it's terrible that we have a new national memorial because of a mass killing that was um, perpetrated because of hatred. So that's awful, but it is, right. it is good. I think that there is um, national recognition that this local site in Orlando is a place that should be one that is marked and one that is permanent in um, national consciousness, right? As a, as a site of reflection, as a, a site to honor those, I believe, 49 people who were killed in a nightclub shooting five years ago. So, uh, you know, if they're, you know, I wish that we didn't have this memorial because the shooting had not happened, right? But right. it is good that, um, that it is, I think, joining a national landscape devoted to um, sort of reflecting on hatred-inspired um, tra- tragedies. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's it it's it's distasteful and sad, and then it's also, I guess, it's good that we're recognizing it and sort of putting the story of people being targeted for their whether it be their 
their gender expression or whether it be their sexual orientation. I mean, we're sort of at least recognizing that and have created this as a memorial. It has no real teeth with it. There's no protection. There's no money that comes with it. So it's sort of a, an honorific title. But it's also interesting, as you were saying, and I hadn't really even thought of this, but it's, um, you know, how do we recognize and mark sites associated with this latest version of terror, mass shootings? Um, and it's it's all across the board, right? Um, the 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 town up in in Connecticut um, where there was the the horrific elementary school shooting. Right there, they they plowed it into the ground. Um, and and uh, you know. As an ardent preservationist, there's not a bit of that that bothers me, right? right. Like, I mean, I, I, I can kind of, I think it's up to the victims and the survivors to kind of make those decisions about those places. And in the case of Pulse, you know, there's going to be a memorial and a museum there. Um, in the in the case up there in Connecticut, um, you know, I think it was basically we don't want there to be anything for anyone to to see or to right. to talk about this. It's very different. And they also took down the home of the shooter as well because they didn't want that to be sold. Um, bought it out and knocked it over. Right. Um, very different perspectives. And then, you know, you have that... It's sad that I can't remember the names of all of them because there are so many. Right. Um, but, you know, in Las Vegas, the insane shooting with the bump stock and everything like that that started right. that conversation, you know, that that's all still there. Right? right. They're not going to take that down. So it is... In, it is how do you, and, and I think it's, it's challenging and it's so emotional for us because it's close. Um, this is always the way I felt when I worked at Gettysburg is that like there it became like a tourist site and it was, you know, it was heritage tourism and people came and visited, but it's a site of mass carnage and violence. Right. Um, and I, does it all, all that it takes is a little bit of time and then they become, we're comfortable visiting them and learning about them. How do we mark them? I mean, whether or not, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, but it is a cultural phenomena of the early 21st century is mass shootings in America. And we have to come to terms with that. And how do we tell that story? And what do we use that story for in terms of advocacy to stop them? I think maybe is a, a bigger question. Right. Especially thinking about very present trauma among people who are living in these communities, right? That it's a question of when does lived memory, right, sort of personal memory of a historic event like mass shootings, when does that become historical memory that is sort of collective but outside of direct personal memories, right? When does that become right. something that um, people learn about generations later? Um and of course, that's not to deny that trauma persists through generations, right? I'm thinking about memorials now increasingly to marking the sites of lynchings in the 20th mm -hmm. and in the 19th century. And on the one hand, we can say, you know, these are well within the lived memory of people alive today. Um, but that generation... Uh, the, the trauma associated those, with those are, is intergenerational, right? That individual people, families, um, towns are still living with the effects of racial terror in this case. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot of scholarship around this. But on the other hand, it's, it's just a matter yeah. of, of sort of acknowledging that 
you know, maybe one way to think about it is the relationship between something like local memory and local commemoration, vernacular commemoration, and then these things like listing on the national, making it a national memorial, right? Like, what does that mean that something is a national memorial that is created by Congress, I think, in this case, right? I think a number mm-hmm. of Congress people um, passed legislation to make this a memorial. What's the difference, right? Like, what tips something into sort of national memory and official commemoration versus sort of local vernacular commemoration? They both coexist, yeah. of course, but... Yeah, and it's hyper-political as well, yes. right? I mean, particularly right now, because guns are caught up in the middle of it. So if you recognize it and you say it was a tragedy that we should remember... Then it begs the question, well, what are you doing about it? Right. You um, know, and honestly, this makes me think about one of my colleagues at Villanova who is a professor of communication. Um, his name is uh, Dr. Gordon Coonfield. He has a really neat digital project. It's called Kensington Remembers. Um, I believe the website is kensingtonremembers.org. And he takes pictures of um, vernacular memorials, often to victims of gun violence, sometimes of the opioid epidemic in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. So he's documenting or preserving these sites that are in many ways very ephemeral, right? They're graffiti or they're shrine, they're teddy bears, right? There are paper pictures of folks on street corners you know, that's a form of preservation of these memorials that people create based on, I think, personal trauma, right? And community trauma is that, you know, does this constitute something that should rise to the national consciousness, right? Um, they're probably yeah. the same number of people who die of gun violence, you know, in this neighborhood in a year as there were at the Pulse nightclub shooting. Um, so there's this matter maybe of sort of the acute sort of um, a particular event that gets seared in the consciousness versus this sort of like long-term ongoing trauma of violence that we see in, in many communities and they're yeah. all marked, and right? <laughs> but what, what's the role of the preservationist? What does preservation look like in this, in this case? Right. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's easy to preserve a house museum or something like that, but so much of our, our history is violent mm-hmm. um, and how we deal with, violence and recognizing it and coming to terms with it and treating it and reckoning with it um, as something I think a lot of times we're so, at least on the practicing side, we're so caught up in doing the work that we don't have time to stop and think about what we're doing. Right. Um, and that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. So speaking of thinking about things, mm-hmm. we have a new national holiday, a time to stop and think. We're actually recording it on the holiday. Um, we, we just got notice a, a day or two ago that it was going to become a holiday. Right. So we, we didn't have we didn't have an opportunity to press pause on this, but it's a good time to record it. It's Juneteenth, um, which, you know what? Growing up as a kid, I didn't know anything about Juneteenth. Interesting. Did you know anything about, did you know anything about Juneteenth as a I, kid? I did. I grew up in Appalachian, Ohio, but I, I definitely I always knew about Juneteenth. I want to say it was from, honestly, history textbooks. Um, I don't believe, um, certainly I was not conscious of Juneteenth celebrations in my own community, which is not to say that they didn't happen. Um, but you know, I always knew of Juneteenth, I think just from history books, but of course 
I say that as somebody who, you know, read the history textbooks. I was obviously very yeah. interested in history. So it probably was not in um, general po- popular consciousness among people my age yeah. necessarily. Well, I think it's great. I mean, I, I, I'm not proud of the fact that I didn't know about it. Um, and obviously, I wasn't quite as good a student as Whitney. Um, <laughs> but um, but I'm, I think it's a great opportunity. I have a five-year-old, and I think it's a great opportunity. And it's wonderful that it will always be something for her. She'll never know anything different. She'll just mm-hmm. know that there's always a holiday in June called Juneteenth. And it's all about the end of slavery and the story associated with that. I think it's a great opportunity. You know, I kind of um, dabble in the world of civil war history. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to talk about, um, the, you know, the, the U S army and bringing freedom and, and sort of, um, the role that black soldiers had in that. I mean, you're talking about Texas and reconstruction and it was overwhelmingly led by black soldiers, Mm -hmm. um, which is such an overlooked piece of the story. Um, Something that we're trying to do in in, in Maryland, uh, in a one community, is sort of document the story of the black soldiers who left from there and the battles that they fought on to try and connect people in the community with these preserved battlefields and why they should care about these places. Um, but it's it's got such an amazing we have such an amazing opportunity now to stop and reflect. And um, I don't want to say the preservation community is caught off guard, but I don't think any of us were prepared. Just like probably the rest of the country like, oh my gosh, we have a new federal holiday, right? Right. Um, and so I think that this could become, just like all the rest of the holidays are, are moments to stop and think and put ourselves in context and reflect um, what an amazing opportunity we have now with Juneteenth um, as a preservation community to stop and reflect. And, you know, this could become a day of service to work on black history sites. And there's so many opportunities um, and it's a, it's a holiday with nice weather. So right. we didn't, we didn't <laughs> stick it in February. We didn't stick it in March. We've it's June, man. This is what a, what a time. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I did, did you see this coming? Were you following this? Is this, I was, I mean, I didn't see it coming long-term. I saw it sort of making its way, um, through, uh, you know, legislative bodies. I think Biden signed it yesterday. Is that true? Yep. Or two days ago? Yep. I forget. Um, yep. And I, yeah, I think it's been interesting to see some of the reactions in the last day or two as well, because I think most people are, you know, are on board. It's, it's good to have a national holiday. It's good to recognize this and hopefully um, have it bring to light, um, you know, a lot of the histories that you mentioned. On the other hand, I've seen a lot of people push back a little bit and say, okay, it's great we have a federal holiday, but what about more direct action, right? What is really going to come of this? What about conversations about reparations? What about conversations about um, racial violence, uh, police brutality, right? So I think there, on the one hand, is recognition that this is one good step, but also some skepticism or some pushback that says, okay, well, a national holiday isn't good enough, right? Like this is not the end result. This is this is hopefully not being done in place of more direct actions to solve some of the roots that the roots of the problem um, of racial injustice um, and inequalities that are still stemming from histories of enslavement in the United States. So hopefully, as you say, it will be more um, of a moment to 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 really reflect on how we can address some of problems that that persist in, in, in the United States. 
Yeah, I guess with it being so new, it remains to be seen. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to. We can make it we'll right. It's back. in our power to to make it um, uh, a, a meaningful um, holiday to address address yeah, we'll issues have to check in, back. in the U.S. Check back next year and see where we're at on that. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we go, uh, what are what are you reading? What are you planning on reading? Yes. Well, mine is an aspirational recommendation that comes uh, on fits right into our, our Juneteenth conversation, and that is um, the recent book by Annette Gordon Reed called On Juneteenth. It is a mix of memoir and history written by wonderful historian. Um, Annette Gordon-Reed is mainly known for her work on Thomas Jefferson and the Hemings family, Um, but she took the chance to write this book as somebody who grew up in Texas and grew up celebrating Juneteenth in Texas. And so um, I've heard it's just a wonderful book. It's on my bookshelf. I'm really looking forward to reading that. Um, And I think a lot of people in the preservation community might really enjoy it as well. Yeah, and man, talk about good timing with releasing a book. I mean, I, I, I mean, she's she's a fantastic historian, but I'm not even sure she saw that perfect timing coming right. together. I saw um, on her Twitter it, feed that she was in in the room when Biden was signing uh, the holiday into effect yesterday. So may, maybe your next book, Whitney, you can kind of plan that way. Yeah, I, that's a you lot know, of like, uh, a good <laughs> good planning. <laughs> Um, so I am currently reading Lincoln on the Verge, 13 Days to Washington. Yet another Lincoln book came out um, last April. Um, no in shortage of those, right? <laughs> no shortage of those. I've read a lot. It's good. It's interesting. It's a topic I haven't really delved into, which is basically Lincoln gets elected. The nation is completely falling apart. And how does he logistically actually get from Springfield to Washington you know, talking about our history of violence without getting killed. Right. There's, there's, there's profound concern that he is going to be killed on the way there because people are so angry. And, um, what's my takeaway from it is it's, you have to like put it down cause it's chilling because there are so many parallels and I don't want to get overblown or political, but there's so many parallels in just sort of these different camps and the different bubbles that people lived in uh, and, and live in and um, the hostility that, that developed in politics um, and um, just how people were kind of talking past each other and kind of living in these different realities. Um, and that's scary to see because I think that we live in a moment where we, where we feel a little bit of that. I, I certainly hope we don't end up where we were in 1860 and I have faith that we won't, but um, boy, it's, it's scary to read about about that and about um, sort of European perspectives on how the only way America would would fall apart is um, if we let these bitter hostilities kind of tear at, tear at ourselves. Um, and then Adam's talking about, you know, they kind of go back to the, the content and the, and the background of all of this in slavery, of course, at the center of all of it. And um, Adam's talking and, and others talking about how, you know, no democracy really has ever ever fully survived because eventually we tear, tear ourselves apart and it's like, Oh, so it's a, it's a tough one to read. I sort of dove into it thinking, Oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be, you know, I love a good Lincoln book. And, um, 
anyway, it's it's hard to divorce yourself from the reality and uh, and but also always helpful to kind of put yourself in context. Right. Um, History never repeats itself, but man, when you read it, sometimes it really can give us a new perspective and a new purchase on what is happening today. And we hear those echoes and it can really make us think about the present in, in new ways. Right. And sometimes those new ways are, are pretty scary. Yeah. Even for people like us who are history nerds who never get enough of it, it still rhymes. Yeah. Well, speaking of rhyming, this was a good, uh, uh, session here. We covered a lot of ground and excited to do it again next month. If people have questions, you can always submit questions um, you can jump on preservecast.org, hit the email button, um, and let us know any questions you have. Maybe we'll take some um, in the next episode. Make sure to give us a five-star review on iTunes and uh, share this. If you enjoy it and you're listening to it, um, dump it on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you're socially active, and uh, we would appreciate it. So. Thank you again, Whitney, for co-hosting So good to be here. Yeah, so good to be here, and I'll see you in July. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.